Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. It's a funny thing about lore, how it intrigues and deceives all at once. Certain places become the thing of lore, assuming a mystique which can entice someone to travel and see, immerse in experience, all that's promised by stories told about these places of lore. But lore has its limits. It flattens and condenses. So when a place becomes the thing of lore, the mystique surrounding it can actually be a source of blindness. Romantic notions of a place, well, those can blind us to its faults. Even still, when there's dismissive or disparaging stories told about a place, in these instances, it's the redeeming qualities that are lost such flattening impressions. So whether we're romanticizing or criticizing a place, either way what we're actually doing is closing an eye and covering an ear, even as what we assume we're doing is looking at and listening to these places, these places of lore. Too often, this is how Lebanon has been perceived, at once beloved and bemoaned, revered and reviled. Let me give you some examples of the lore surrounding Lebanon. Mark Twain may be best known in the United States as a satirist, novelist, and a keen observer of race in the 19th century, but Twain traveled the world, and when he did, he did exactly what writers do. He spilled a lot of ink, dripping a drop or two of excess criticism along the way when describing Lebanon in his around-the-world saga, published by the name The Innocents Abroad. So, of Lebanon, here's what Twain had to say. We had a tedious ride of about five hours in the sun across the valley of Lebanon. It proved to be not quite so much of a garden as it had seemed from the hillsides, it was a desert, weed-grown waste, littered thickly with stones the size of a man's fist. This American abroad didn't find too much to love about the country. But we would be mistaken if we took Twain as the final word on the matter. For all of the faults that Twain found, many others have looked upon Lebanon with awe and amazement. I'll turn to the late Lebanese historian and public intellectual Samir Kassir for a different take. Quote, There are places that inspire lyricism. Lying in the shadow of a mountain, streaked by riverbeds aligned with one another by some unknown providence or hand of fate, set along coves and shores of rock, pebble, and sand, and endowed with natural harbors, that for centuries have witnessed the ceaseless labors of mankind. The long and narrow plain that runs along the Mediterranean has captured the imaginations of travelers since ancient times. Whether they first set eyes upon it from the sea or from the heights of Mount Lebanon. Of the two, between Twain and Kassir, it's Kassir's sentiment that I've personally known. I've long been inclined to look upon Lebanon with reverence. The country has intrigued and fascinated me, even as I know well enough to avoid the old Orientalist tropes that cast Lebanon and the Levant more generally as an exotic world of delights. But even still, for much of my adult life, I've been attracted to Lebanon. Yet it was in the space between loving and loathing Lebanon that I found a voice that made me commit to go there and see beyond Twain's diatribe and the lyricism recounted by Kassir. I wanted to see Lebanon in all of its complexity. I arrived at this decision one night in Aqaba, the Jordanian Red Sea town, while reading Anthony Shadid's memoir, House of Stone. Shadid's memoir recounts his time in Lebanon, repairing his ancestral home, and in the process, his spirit. I found myself riveted by Shadid's description of Lebanon, the people he encountered, his attempts to locate himself in the society, an attempt to locate himself as a Lebanese-American, making a return to the place that his family once called home. 
For Shadid, Lebanon is a house of stone in need of repair. It's old and strong and durable, yet parts of it have crumbled. With patience and attentiveness, it can be rebuilt. So when I visited Lebanon for the first time, I thought about Shadid's house of stone metaphor, particularly when I encountered reminders of the country's Jewish past. Lebanon is an incredibly diverse country. It's home to Shia, Sunni, Copts, Druze, Alawi, Armenians, Maronites, Ismailis, Orthodox, Chaldeans, and many, many more people. Yet I never actually thought of Lebanon as being home to a Jewish population. So when I found myself in the mountain village of Deir al-Amr, looking at the community's former synagogue, I had a lot of questions. Lots of questions beyond those that brought me to Lebanon in the first place. By this point, even though years had passed, I thought back to the metaphor he used to describe Lebanon. I asked myself, who is it that's lived in this house of stone? If its walls could speak, what stories would they tell? So after visiting Deir al-Amr for the first time, seeing the building that once served as a synagogue, and knowing that the village was no longer home to a Jewish community, I wanted to know more about who these Jews were. But I also wanted to know how it is that they're remembered today. So I set out to speak to someone who could help answer some of my questions. Someone whose research and interests intersect with my own desire to know more about the Jews of Lebanon, the lore of Lebanon for outsiders, and the memories held and stories told by non-Jewish Lebanese about their Jewish counterparts, who, by and large, are no longer living in Lebanon. And that's when Lior Sternfeld recommended that I talk to Molly Oranger. Molly Theodore Oranger is a doctoral candidate in sociocultural anthropology at UCLA, who studies the legacy of Lebanon's Jewish community, focusing on the way non-Jewish Lebanese interact with Jewish spaces and construct and hold on to memories of Jewish Lebanese, the Jewish Lebanese that they once knew but who have left the country over the years. Let's listen to Molly and learn more about Lebanon, its history, the place of its Jewish community in this history, and the way non-Jewish Lebanese have come to play the role of cultural brokers as they look after Jewish spaces and tell stories of Jews. Jews who are now part of that worldwide community known as the Lebanese diaspora. Yalla, let's learn together. Lebanese Jews may seem like something out of, you know, a fairy tale book, but if you think about it, it's not so strange that in the times of the Bible, so to say, Jews would have had connection with areas outside of what we call the land of Israel. So Stretching back to biblical times, it's thought that, you know, according to biblical myth, the second temple was built with wood that was taken from cedar forests in Lebanon. So that sort of commercial relationship has existed a long time. And then the earliest accounts of Jews that we have in what we call Lebanon today are accounted for in travelogues, whether that's, you know, European missionaries or pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, or perhaps traders making their way to inland Syria. So we know that by the 1700s, there were established communities in Tripoli, in the north of Lebanon, and historically connected to Syria. We know there were communities in the south, so in a town called Hasbaya, which is now near the Israeli border. And we also know that there was a lot of movement in days where the Levant was not divided by the borders of the nation state, for instance. Every year, Jews would come up from Egypt, Palestine, and as far away as, you know, Iraq and Iran to celebrate Lagba Omer, actually alongside Shia residents of the particular village that they made pilgrimage to as it was thought to be a site of various Jewish important figureheads who were buried there. So you have a long history of Jews in Lebanon, but you also have a long history of Jews in the region interacting with Lebanese or the people who would become Lebanese over time. You talk about interaction. 
And then you also talk about the idea of becoming Lebanese. So from that, I can imagine that these identities are fluid, they're evolving over time. And as such, did these Jewish communities see themselves in terms of a Lebanese identity? Or did they see themselves as residing in this space, but outside of that identity? And then going back to what I was saying about interaction, in spite of religious differences, would these people have seen themselves at different historical moments as being of the same community with a religious divide or of being clearly two separate communities because of religious difference? You know, I think that sort of adaptability that you're getting at is really important here. And in Lebanon, you really see a history of fluidity of identity. So while I wouldn't necessarily say that everyone got along all the time, I would say that it was a historically cosmopolitan place in, in as much as people sometimes identified with the village they were from. Sometimes they identified with the place that their father was born. Sometimes it was about a religious affiliation, especially when it came to things like marriage or family issues. But it really wasn't until the mid to late 1800s. At this time, you know, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire as was, you know, a whole bulk of the area that we would now call the Levant. And with increased European pressure as history led up to World War I, there was also an increased pressure to start seeing yourself as a citizen of not only a nation state, but as a citizen uh, with a particular religious orientation that you then used to gain political and social representation. So at the time of the end of the Ottoman Empire, at the end of the First World War, you really had these solidified identities where people would do things like vote under their religious confession, or they were only able to seek political representation through a quota system based on your religion. And that's something that was not particularly, you know, it was not a primordial thing in Lebanon, and it was not something that Jews utilized as their sole means of identity or representation until around this time, where basically the whole world is turning to the nation state as the model of self-determination. So I would say, you know, it really depends on the historical and local circumstances. But for the most part, Jews did see themselves as broadly part of a diverse political project, whether that was under the Ottoman Empire, where they were advocating for their rights as Ottoman citizens, or that was at the birth of the idea of the Lebanese nation. And here we really see the uniqueness of the situation of the Lebanese Jews, because unlike in a place like, you know, Iraq, where there were far more Jews than there ever were in Lebanon, where Jews really engaged with questions of Arab nationalism and even with things like communism, in Lebanon, Jews were really invested in an idea mostly led by Maronite Christians of this nation of minorities. So the, the conditions of Lebanon are one in which it's really defining itself against this sort of pan-Arab identity that's emerging in the 20th century. So rather than seeing themselves as part of greater Syria, or even like the Iraqi Jews as part of a larger Arab decolonial project, the Jews of Lebanon are really aligning themselves with sort of a project that's led by mostly Christian nationalists that claims a pre-Arab Phoenician identity. It claims a kind of indigeneity that I've only seen align itself uh, with Zionism more and more as I do the research. And it also sees itself as part of a nation of minorities. So Jews really invested themselves in this sort of nation of minorities idea that was also then, you know, involved things like laissez-faire capitalism, an economy that's built mostly on mercantile activities and banking, and really seeing themselves as something like a bridge between the broader Middle East and their long-standing connections with Europe. You also had a community of Jews who were sort of gathering from many different corners of the Ottoman Empire and Mediterranean. So you had Jews coming from Greece, from Turkey, from Egypt, and, you know, lots of families could trace their, uh, or, you know, claim to trace their families back to, uh, you know, the Inquisition. And you even had, you know, Ashkenazi rabbis who were establishing themselves in places like Beirut uh, as time went on. But, you know, 
there's a stereotype that is not totally untrue of Lebanese as really like mercantile seafaring entrepreneurs. That's a relationship that has very much been longstanding. And Jews, like all Lebanese, but mostly Christians based on, you know, religious similarities, um, have longstanding trade relationships with places like France. Those relationships that were established starting uh, with missionary activity uh, and trade of things like silk in the 1800s really did help to establish or further solidify the ties that Jews had to various European um, powers. And because of that sort of sociopolitical alignment of Jews with various Christian minorities, but mostly Maronite Catholics, you had sort of an influence of um, Francophone, increased Francophone uh, connection as time went on, and especially under the French mandate. Molly mentioned the French mandate, but what exactly is that and where did it come from? Why does it matter in terms of understanding Lebanon's modern history? Or even still, the history of the Middle East and colonialism? What does it mean in terms of understanding the experiences of Jews in Lebanon? After World War I, the Ottoman Empire falls apart, right? And before it had been, you know, increasingly getting smaller over time. So very much anticipating that the Ottoman Empire was not going to, you know, last beyond World War I, various European powers got together and redrew the Middle East according to their imperial interests. So that saw Britain getting Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq, and the French carving out what they saw as Greater Syria, which was thought of as sort of one entity under the mandate, but quickly became two separate political projects that we now know as Syria and Lebanon. So the French mandate lasted between the 20s and 40s, and it was basically like a mini colony, although, you know, the French definitely didn't necessarily see it like Algeria. You know, they didn't see it as an integral part of the nation, but it was really thought of as almost like Christian brothers under French rule. And it's under this influence of France that Lebanon really develops into uh, the sectarian-based country that we know today. This sectarianism that Molly mentions, what did that mean for government representation? and the political status of Jews as the Ottoman Empire came to an end and French colonial intervention shaped the way religious identity became part of how Lebanon was governed. So Jews were represented by what was called a minority representative. So how uh, sectarianism really took shape as we know it today is it became the sole way that you gained political representation. It was under that system that Jews got thrown into the category of basically everyone else who doesn't have the numbers to warrant uh, specific representation. And I will say that for the most part, Jews were not particularly happy about this. They saw themselves as, you know, very much uh, a part of the mercantile class of Lebanon. And at this point, they were mostly living in and around Beirut. And they thought, you know, we contribute to this economy in a way that far outseeds the numbers that you would guess on paper. And therefore, we are, you know, within our right to demand representation as well. That hasn't played out. And for the most part today, although Jews remain represented under this sort of minority representative and can vote, a Jew, only one Jew, I believe, in the past 10 years has showed up to vote. And we know that because you can only vote through your particular sectarian affiliation. So if a Jew votes, someone will know about it. It wasn't really until, I would say, 1958, because of, you know, pressure from various leftist movements, fighting broke out uh, in a way that for the first time really threatened the ability for Jews to not only, um, you know, gather safely in their neighborhood in Beirut, which, you know, later would fall on that infamous green line that divided Beirut between nominally Muslim West and Christian East. That's a good 10 years after the establishment of the State of Israel, which is sort of that watershed moment where we think of everything changing. And if Jews didn't leave at that point, it was the point where sort of politically they felt like their political situation was less certain than it used to be. And in Lebanon, it's actually the only country in the Arab world where the number of Jews rose after 48. After the establishment of the state of Israel, 
why would the demographics have changed in that direction? What is the state of Lebanese Jewry in the 21st century? The number of Jews in Lebanon rose after 48, mainly because Lebanon remained sort of a relatively stable, Western-oriented country, if not in practice, then at least in, you know, stereotype or reputation. So you had Jews coming to Lebanon from places like Syria, where there were instances of anti-Jewish violence. They were also coming from Iraq, where... You know, you had things like the Farhood, so a program against Iraqi Jews. And they were also coming from places like Turkey or even, um, you know, if we look a little farther back around World War II, they were coming from Eastern Europe, surprisingly. So Lebanon's reputation as a bastion of tolerance, whether or not it's, you know, legitimate is kind of besides the point because people really saw it as such. So with that in mind, were these populations relocating to Lebanon as a layover of sorts en route to Israel or some other location? Or were they seeing this as a possible place to actually resettle with a degree of permanence? The Lebanese state, you know, ever conscious of its uh, demographic issues, let's call them, was not particularly eager to grant Jews coming from abroad uh, official papers. So you did have Jews doing things like forging actually Iranian passports from the days under the Shah to eventually find themselves in places like Canada, South America, New York. But you also did have Jews going across the border to Israel. These were mostly Jews who were helped by various Zionist organizations in paying their smuggling fees or sort of paying for their relocation. They were not, you know, these bourgeois mercantile families or people who already had family in Israel. So, you know, before the days of uh, nation-state borders, that sort of flow of people between places like Israel and Lebanon meant that you had families straddling the border who would move back and forth. But you also did have plenty of Jews who, coming from places like Aleppo, made their homes in Lebanon for the foreseeable future only to then be forced out by the, you know, horrors of, of civil war. What were some of the catalyzing social and political currents that brought about that relocation and that departure from Lebanon? You had Lebanon sort of occupying this ambiguous position as not totally Arab and, you know, sort of Western facing, but still very much of the region. And that influenced both how Jews saw themselves as belonging to Lebanon and saw themselves as invested in sort of the kind of life that Lebanon provided them. Lebanon doesn't exist in a political vacuum. Even if Jews in Lebanon invested in the sense of belonging to a nation of minorities and of being Lebanese, this didn't divorce them from the sweeping political changes that were happening in the region, namely the establishment of the State of Israel and the subsequent displacement and conflict with Palestinians many of whom would end up in Lebanon in the 1940s and again in the aftermath of the 1967 war. So what did the Israel-Palestine conflict mean for Jews in Lebanon, for their social standing, for their sense of belonging to Lebanon? It was really only after 67 where pressure on um, Jews got a little more constant, never at the state level per se, but you would occasionally have like grenades thrown into uh, the Lebanese Jewish neighborhood in Beirut, or, you know, more and more people realized that this conflict was not coming to an end anytime soon. After 67, you had even more Palestinian refugees making their way to Lebanon. And then, you know, after Black September in Jordan, which forced the PLO out of Jordan and had them relocating to Lebanon, many Lebanese Jews were not terribly thrilled to see Palestinian militants basically acting as a state within a state. And I think, you know, whatever your orientation on the Palestinian question The reality is that Palestinians, relatively uh, speaking, had a lot of autonomy in Lebanon. And um, around the same time that you have these numbers of militants increasing, you also have various sectarian-oriented or uh, 
Arab nationalist oriented or pro-Palestine or anti-Palestinian militias emerging at the same time. And it became obvious to Lebanese Jews that their sort of way of life was no longer sustainable. And that became very evident as the Civil War, which technically began in 1970, wore on and on and on. As Lebanon's civil war escalated, the idea of Lebanon's cosmopolitan identity became destabilized. Beirut's image as the Paris of the Middle East would be replaced by the image of a city in the throes of war. What did this situation mean for Lebanese Jews? Did they leave overnight? How did this community go from one that grew during the 20th century to one that all but disappeared? I can imagine then that there was not this exodus moment. Was it a, a slow trickle of Lebanese Jews departing? You have moments where you see people taking off more, specifically, you know, 1958 with the First Civil War. After 67, as people grew more wary that, you know, improvement was a thing that could happen in, in the next, you know, years and decades to come. And then especially, you know, as the political situation became untenable for those Jews who were very much connected to Lebanese banking, mercantilism, you know, money trading, diamond dealing, all of these sort of affluent or bourgeois-oriented livings that they were making became, you know, no one needs diamonds during the Civil War. You can't really trade if the port is bombed out or occupied by militias. Or there's only so many, you know, bribes that people can extract from you before you're like, okay, I think I, think I need to take this business abroad. And um, by that point, you know, the Lebanese diaspora was already very bloated at this point, something like 10 times the, the size of the population within Lebanon. So people did have a lot of familial connections throughout the Americas, throughout France, and even in Israel. So that Lebanese diaspora, I imagine it's not particular to the Jewish community, but it extended beyond to other segments of Lebanese society? Lebanese Christians have dominated the diaspora numbers, particularly in the Americas, for a long time. And you did see some Lebanese Jews following those same sorts of immigration patterns, but you also saw uh, Lebanese Jews settling in areas with other large, you know, broadly Sephardi populations, let's say. So one of the places that Lebanese Jews settled in uh, in large numbers is Brooklyn, New York, where there was already a very large Syrian Jewish population. As Lebanese Jews left the country, and entered into a state of diaspora, what part of their identity became dominant and pronounced? Who did they associate with when, for instance, they made their way to the United States? And how did they forge connections and find a sense of belonging? They really became part of this broader Sephardic community. So whether that was Egyptian Jews who left during the age of Nasser, or Syrian Jews who came over earlier, or Jews from Iraq and Iran who stopped over in Israel before immigrating to the U.S. There's sort of a pan-Sephardic community that has emerged, I'm sure, in relation to Ashkenazi Jewish practices, because as a Jew in Brooklyn, you can't really, you know, ignore that Ashkenazi hegemony. But very much, you know, in conversation with that, but also very much keeping that Sephardic identity as they see it. So whether that's through food, as it usually is in the diaspora, whether that's through playing Lebanese and Egyptian music, whether that's, you know, keeping their liturgies in Arabic, teaching their kids Arabic phrases. Diaspora changes the way people relate to their country of origin. Diasporas breed nostalgia for home alongside the pain of displacement. So how did Lebanese Jews in diaspora come to remember Lebanon? What associations did Lebanese Jews in diaspora have with the country? The overwhelming majority of Lebanese Jews in the diaspora that I've had conversations with have very fond feelings towards Lebanon. They remember it whether they themselves were born there or they're inheriting the memories of their parents as a place of cosmopolitan tolerance where Jews and Christians went to the same schools, 
where they might celebrate Easter with their Christian friends and invite their non-Jewish friends over for Passover. There's a very sort of nostalgic and also sad relationship to what was lost or sort of the futures that were foreclosed by these competing nationalisms. It's one thing to feel nostalgia. It's another thing to invest in the preservation and maintenance of Jewish spaces within Lebanon by Jews who are living in diaspora outside of Lebanon. So what kind of work is being done to these Jewish spaces with the help or funding from Jews who are living outside of the country? So there's certainly a big part of it. And, you know, whether or not they're on the ground doing the work, they're often the ones funding the projects of revitalization. So, for instance, a cemetery outside of Saida was recently renovated, given a new wall through funding from a family with historical connections to the city who are now mostly in France. Or, for instance, you know, when the main synagogue in Beirut started to be uh, revitalized in 2009. It was mostly, though certainly not all, through diasporic donations of Lebanese or broadly Levantine Jews in the diaspora. Because Jews have not returned in mass since the days of the Civil War, it's Lebanese who are non-Jews who are the ones sort of overlooking these sites, whether they're cemeteries, synagogues, former schools. What does it mean when non-Jews in Lebanon are telling stories, keeping memories, and constructing understandings of Jews, particularly when this Jewish community is not there in large numbers or in any meaningfully overt way? I'm finding this framework of the cultural broker, so that person who, being a non-Jew themselves, for whatever myriad reasons they could be driven to do this kind of work, is engaging and narrating both a Jewish past and thinking about how that past feeds into a national imaginary in the present. Even during the worst of the Civil War, there was very much this narrative of, you know, Zionism and Jews are not the same entity. With all of, you know, the problems that that might bring up or sort of the sweeping generalization that a statement like that makes, you had, let's say, you know, the PLO guarding uh, the main synagogue during the Israeli occupation of Beirut because Israeli shells were actually hitting the synagogue as they invaded. Or, you know, you have Palestinian refugees living in what was once, you know, the main synagogue of Saida, which has basically been out of use since the 70s. So they've sort of become the main gatekeepers of stories of Jews when people come, you know, poking around looking for an unmarked synagogue. Why would these people become cultural brokers, telling stories and inviting people into these spaces? to hear their recollections. If you've ever engaged with uh, Lebanese culture casually, you might have heard of this idea of cultural amnesia after the Civil War. Because there was no sort of reconciliation and truth-finding mission after the Civil War, people were very much driven by the state narrative of no victor, no vanquished. So basically, everyone just gave up their arms and militias transitioned into becoming political parties. People will assume that amnesia is really the route that everyone took because there was no official policy of remembrance or reconciliation, that people really just tried to get past it and move forward. But what I'm finding in my research is that people actually are eager to engage with both an underrepresented history of flourishing Jewish community prior to the Civil War and then thinking about what kind of alternatives might have been available to Lebanese and Lebanese Jews had geopolitics not overrun the society. Whether they're, you know, 19-year-olds engaging with the topic of Lebanese Jews on Reddit, or they're um, local historians writing books in Arabic and French about histories of Lebanese Jews, or they're just families who happen to live next to, you know, a former synagogue people are really able to engage with this question of what if we think about difference differently and what if we think about belonging in a way that is not necessarily based on sectarian orientation, 
but is based on a larger sense of uh, existing together throughout history. As non-Jews in Lebanon try to reimagine identity, intercommunal relations and interactions, what is it that they're interacting with? I would say that it really depends on age. For those who lived through the memories of the Civil War, some of my interlocutors do things like think through memories of engaging with uh, invading Israeli forces in the 80s. So one of my interlocutors told me a story about he grew up in a very prominent wealthy Sunni family. And during the worst of the invasion of Beirut, his family fled to the mountains where they encountered Israeli soldiers. And one of them turned out to have the same last name as my interlocutor's first name. So he has memories of doing things like learning basic Hebrew and riding around on tanks. So you have people engaging with histories of military occupation to think about that kind of stuff, sort of in a, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend sort of way. You have people who lived through years of Israeli occupation in the south of Lebanon and may have had memories of family members or, you know, fellow villagers who worked alongside the Israeli troops who occupied South Lebanon. And then you have younger generations of, you know, non-Jewish Lebanese who are kind of fed up with the political status quo and turning to the internet like all of us millennials and Gen Zers do. They realize that, you know, despite these kind of arbitrary laws that prevent you from talking with the enemy, that there are plenty of people who are willing to talk to you as either, you know, Israelis, as people who uh, are Lebanese living in the diaspora, as Jews who have absolutely nothing to do with Lebanon. <laughs> um, so, you know, the few people who I met in Lebanon who are of Jewish ancestry mostly got their sense of Jewishness through these engagements with stuff online. So one of my interlocutors, for instance, his understanding of his Jewishness is very much based on things like watching Woody Allen movies, watching Seinfeld, engaging with various Reddit communities having to do with, you know, pan-Jewish culture, Hebrew language. There's a number of synagogues throughout Lebanon. Let's take a look at how non-Jewish Lebanese are interacting with these synagogues, especially as they're no longer in use by an active Jewish community. There's many spaces that can be counted as Jewish remaining in Lebanon. The most visible or high profile of those are, of course, the five remaining synagogues in the country, which are in various states of disarray or reconstruction. The main one that everyone who engages with Lebanese Jewish history has heard of is the Magan Abraham Synagogue in central Beirut. Underwent a very high profile renovation starting in 2009. A lot of diasporic money went into the project, but you also had money from companies like uh, the company that oversaw the total redevelopment of central Beirut. And even groups like Hezbollah have claimed to donate money. And now places like Magan Abraham Synagogue and the larger neighborhood of Wadi Abu Jamil, which is this sort of quintessential Jewish area in Beirut and, you know, the only, um, you know, specifically majority Jewish neighborhood in the capital, sort of being overseen as part of this heavily neoliberal reconstruction of the city center. So in the case of places like Wadi Abu Jamil, you have a Saudi billionaire who then became the prime minister basically single-handedly making decisions on behalf of the entire Lebanese population under the guise of rebuilding a city center that can be a non-sectarian meeting place for everyone. If you've been to Beirut now, you know that that city center is an elitist shopping mall and a series of gated communities in which the synagogue belongs to one. So if you want to get to that synagogue, you have to have some connection, whether it's to the prime minister, to someone living within that gated community, to some high up minister who can actually first let you into the gated community and then maybe let you into the synagogue if you're very, very lucky and have the right connections. You also have families who are originally from 67 Palestine, some from places like Yaffa, or those who fled Yarmouk camp more recently um, outside of Damascus, settling in the former Jewish neighborhood of Saida. So you have the former synagogue there has now been divided up into a series of very small private homes 
And occasionally these people who, you know, they didn't sign up to preserve Lebanese Jewish history. They pay their rents to absentee landlords who live in the diaspora or sort of people who have been chosen by these families to collect rents on their behalf, who occasionally receive visitors like a band of Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox rabbis who came on a, quote, peace mission and pray in the synagogue, you know. So you have sort of these witting brokers, people like agencies, like the real estate developers that I mentioned in uh, Wadi Abujamil in Beirut. And then you have these people who really never signed up to be historians of the local Jewish community who are dealing with their own histories of displacement. So there is this overlapping sort of narrative of displacement and loss that people are inheriting. Let's hear one story of these cultural brokers and focus on the village of Deir al-Amr, which is found in the Shuf Mountains, southeast of Beirut. You have folks like a husband and wife duo that I met who live right next to the synagogue in Deir al-Kamar, which was actually one of the most well-known Jewish communities up until the mountain wars of the 1860s. This husband and wife duo live in a very old church that they converted into a home. And they live next door to a synagogue that I believe was built in the 1700s, but now is under the um, sort of administration of the French Cultural Center and the Department of Antiquities, who use it as like a cultural space for French lessons, dance classes, etc. And there's no markers of Jewishness on it. Apparently, there was a Star of David, and it was taken down during the most recent renovation and then replaced with a seven-point star. But this wife and husband duo have really put themselves out there to engage with visitors who will come and peek around looking for a synagogue. The story that always stands out the most to me is they told me that during the Israeli invasion, helicopters came to celebrate the marriage of two Israeli colonels. And you had all of these very high profile Israeli you know, heads of state and politicians landing helicopters on top of the synagogue in the mountains of Lebanon. Following my interview with Molly, I actually traveled to Lebanon and spent a week in Deir al-Amar. I had been there in 2019, doing the very thing Molly mentioned, poking around and trying to locate the synagogue, a synagogue I didn't know existed, but once I heard about it, I had to find it. At the time, in 2019, I briefly saw the synagogue, but I became more captivated by the village and its stone houses. I found myself there yet again in 2021, this time better informed about the synagogue and the village's Jewish history, not just in the 19th century, but also during the 1980s when Israel invaded. So when I happened, just out of coincidence, to encounter the same couple that Molly mentioned, I was floored. After we finished lunch and while we were enjoying coffee, The husband that Molly mentioned, Abdu, he told me this very story. He agreed to let me record the surprising and surreal account of an Israeli wartime wedding in Lebanon. In regards to the wedding of a captain who was a pilot and the wife he married, also a pilot, The bride walked out of this house here, and they went to the synagogue. There were around 400 invitees from Israel. That roof facing the synagogue was all filled with people. The minister, Ariel Sharon, have you heard of him? Ariel Sharon attended their wedding here. The people, they were... It was such a beautiful night. And yes, go ahead. For three days. For three days. The wedding was for three days. People going and people coming and entering. There couldn't have been a more remarkable wedding. But because we didn't have cameras and stuff, we didn't take photos. But remember the wedding and how it happened. There isn't a wedding more remarkable than that one. It was marvelous. His Excellency, the Minister of Defense, Ariel Sharon, entered through this street here, in front of the house, 
and found Baba sitting here on this ledge, outside on the wall. He didn't say shalom to him, he said marhaba. He sat next to him. Welcome, let's sit inside, my dad said to him. He said, no, we can't sit inside, we'll sit right here. My dad said, no, that's embarrassing, how would we just sit on the wall like this? He said, no, when we go to Israel, the farmer and the land, the beam and the plow, we will work in the land over there, all of us. We go from here and there, there is land. We will plow it, plant it, and work it. When I spoke to Molly, I could not have anticipated encountering the very same husband and wife couple that she mentioned, let alone setting foot in the very synagogue in question. It was all so surreal and unexpected. The sentiments expressed in the story were not what I assumed I would hear. I wanted Molly to explain it to me. I needed her help in understanding how we could extract or locate or perhaps try to construct some meaning from the story. Let's pretend that we're in a classroom for a second and you're working with some undergrads and you introduce them to this couple and that story. It sounds juicy. I think if I were a younger learner, I would say, what is going on here? This is confounding my expectations. It's a little confusing. What does that story reveal to us? You know, I think that trying to understand something like a husband and wife duo getting a kick out of the fact that they partied with Israeli generals does cause a bit of confusion. You know, I think in the worst of the Civil War, there was a notion that everything that had begun the Civil War, so all of these sort of pushes for justice, for fighting against what many perceived to be imperial and Zionist powers in the region, really kind of dissolved into a free-for-all where, you know, neighbors were killing neighbors without purpose. And I sort of understand the enthusiasm of this couple, sort of through a refusal of accepting the political status quo of the 80s at a time under which they felt everyone was fighting everyone without purpose. And in this moment, they saw these helicopters landing on a synagogue as being a revitalization of a space that had not seen uh, religious services or prayer in almost, at that point, you know, 110 years. And I, I think in many ways, they saw it as a breakup of the mundanity of the violence that they were experiencing every day. And in many ways, I think they're emblematic of a group of Christians who see themselves perhaps is more aligned with the ways that they wish their country was more like Israel. So, you know, more prosperous, more financially stable, able to defend itself. Uh, and they see that reflected in something like helicopters landing on top of a synagogue. I want to hear one more story. You mentioned the PLO in front of the synagogue. I, I need to learn from something from that. The story is that during the Israeli invasion of Beirut in 1982, that the PLO either sought refuge in the synagogue or they protected the synagogue or some combination of both. And by this time, the synagogue in Beirut was very much part of this no man's land territory. How people treat the synagogue has been a major point of what I've thought about in my own research, because I think these stories about how people engage with the synagogue tell us a lot about how people imagine their own engagement with Jews. Molly has shared an incredible amount of history with us. She's illuminated so much about Lebanon's vision of itself as a nation of minorities, a nation that has experienced the suffering brought on by a civil war, a country that once had a dynamic Jewish community, and one that continues to remember and tell stories of Jews, stories that are part of an ongoing effort to calibrate a newfound understanding of the country and what it could possibly look like in the future. So with all of this in mind, what is Molly's final message? What's her parting sentiment for us? You know, there's this phrase that always sticks in my mind. I believe it's attributed to this historian named Diana Pinto, who said, if there is room for Jews, there's room for difference. And I think that this stereotype of the Middle East as a place that has always excluded Jews from a sense of belonging, whether that's, you know, regional or local belonging. By exploring this history of 
how Jews not only belonged regionally in Lebanon, but also saw themselves as really very much invested in the Lebanese state building project allows us to reconsider how Jews shaped their own forms of belonging, both in relation to uh, political Zionism and sometimes in contention with it and often in a deep ambivalence to it. So much of what I've learned about Lebanon has been surprising, in part because there's so many descriptions of the country, like the Mark Twain description I read earlier, that need to be moved beyond in order to get a glimpse into this society, a glimpse that isn't full of lyricism or Orientalist tropes. Lebanon is a mosaic society, and Molly has shown us how misguided it would be to simply recount a Jews in Muslim land story when invoking the history of Jews in Lebanon. Now that I've been to Lebanon on multiple occasions, I can attest to this lesson. When I think about Lebanon, I'll do so knowing that Jews are deeply part of this nation's history. I'll do so knowing that Jews are very much a part of this house of stone. A special thanks to Molly Theodora Oranger. It was a real treat talking to you. If you're interested in learning more about Molly's research and interests, visit her website at mtoranger.com. There you can learn more about Molly's publications, but also about the work she does as an editor, working with writers on travel writing, cultural criticism, and storytelling projects. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy and Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Another special thanks to Michael Karam for his translation and voice acting. Michael is a freelance translator from Lebanon, a nonprofit professional working and living in Massachusetts. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechutson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. This group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with joy and conversation by subscribing to your podcast platform of choice and visit our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufaku, we'll see you next time.